We're going to be talking about the Good Samaritan. We're going to be in, in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to begin at verse 21. I have it on the, on the PowerPoint as well, but I'd like to go to the Lord in prayer if we could first. Les, would you lead us, please, sir? Lord, we come before you this morning as broken but repaired people, repaired by your blood. Thank you for the miracle that Barb shared about Mona Snyder, who in her advanced years was broken to bits, and yet you have somehow, despite the doctor's proclamation, put her back together and returned her to her family. And Lord, we ask that you would do that to each of our hearts, to each of our souls, that you put us back together right from the world that we or we live in may have created. I pray that you would put us in the right. Thank you for your word. It makes a difference in our hearts. Thank you for Bob. Bring it to us. Help us to gather it in and please apply it to us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Les. Well, now, if we can back up three weeks, uh, the 70 that he sent out on what I call the second mission trip uh, returned, and they were delighted at how things were going. They, uh, they were rejoicing both that people were being healed, people were getting saved, but that even the demons would uh, respond to their commands. And Jesus took a moment personally in verse 21, and celebrated this event for himself and for the kingdom. Uh, and he said, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it so, so it seemed good in thy sight. And uh, it was just an encouragement for him to see his, his followers growing and reaching out, attempting and succeeding at witnessing and spreading the word. And that's true for any one of us that shares the gospel with someone. He takes that same joy in you. There was, however, someone in the audience not quite as happy about the whole thing, and that was a lawyer. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, tested really, tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He had been standing in the crowd and is obviously somewhat offended. You can tell it by his tone in the questions. This man is an expert in Mosaic law. He's a doctor of the law. But we know that all the education in the world doesn't make us infallible. And without wisdom... All the information we have is useless. So while we seek to gain knowledge, above all, seek to gain wisdom. He's educated. He's in the leadership of Israel. And it is the educated leadership of Israel that conspired against the people to put Jesus to death. I often wonder, of course, with God, he doesn't have to wonder, but... I've often wondered what would happen if the leadership of Israel had recognized Jesus. If they'd have gone back in the old prophecies and looked at it and realized that this was in fact the Messiah and would have accepted him. I often wonder what would have happened. 
But it wasn't in the plan of God. So he stands up and asks Jesus this question, which is a valid question. What must, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a fair question. It's a good question. It's one that every one of us should ask. But remember, this fellow has spent his entire life studying the law. And by that, I don't mean law books in, in the United States legal system. I mean the Old Testament law. This guy's an expert in the Old Testament law. In fact, these guys were experts in finding ways around the law. The law says you shouldn't do this. They find a way, they find a loophole, they find an interpretation that allows them to do whatever they want to do in spite of the law. And later on, next chapter, Jesus is going to rebuke them, whether it's this specific lawyer or not, I don't know. But it reminds me a lot of what our lawmakers do now. They find ways that they can do insider investing in shady deals and make money in making laws for a nation. And you think, wow, these guys are criminals. It's never been like this before, but it has. It's always been like this. And this is the way these guys are. So in the next chapter, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, and it's unnecessary, but I thought you'd like to see it. Later on, he says unto them, Woe unto you also, you lawyers, for you laid men with burdens grievous to be born, and ye yourselves touch not the burden with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for you build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Well, you get an idea what Jesus thought of these lawyers. These are the guys that ultimately turn on him and execute him. Within, I think we're getting close to his last year of ministry now. But in answer to the question, a legitimate question, he asked the lawyer a question. He said unto him, you know, the lawyer asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to the lawyer, what is written in the law? What does the Old Testament teach you about salvation? Doctor, how do you read the law? And the lawyer answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. Now you know this is the Shema. It's a Hebrew word which means to hear. You first find it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. I'm going to get forward and I'm going to lose myself here in a minute. The Shema starts in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. And there's, there's about nine or ten verses in this, this rendition of the Shema that the Jews, well, the faithful Jews, will recite Morning and night. There's another one just like it. Uh, you find in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So you put that together and you make a, a, a twice daily recitation. And in a way, the Shema is, or the hearing, is a brief rendition that attempts to encapsulate all of the Old Testament law. And by doing this, you're recommitting yourself morning and night to obey and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to back up if I don't mess this thing up too terribly. 
Um, and I want you to see Jesus' response to that. Well, I wanted to say, if, if I don't lose my place too terribly, that this is very similar to the Lord's Prayer for us. Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, and interestingly enough, without any, without any knowledge ahead of time, Linda got up and read the Lord's Prayer to us, and that's really, uh, that, that's really similar to what the Shema is for the Old Testament Jew. The Lord's Prayer is for us, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's a recitation of our relationship to the Father. And at uh, quarter of eight every morning, underneath the radiation gun, I'm going, Our Father who art in heaven. And how many times I get through it determines how long I'm under the gun. But it's given me a great opportunity to practice the Lord's Prayer. Look at Jesus' response. The lawyer answers, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and thy neighbor is thyself. And Jesus said, You've answered right. Do this and you'll live. And I think, really? It's true. It's true. But there are some caveats with it. When you hear this, what do you think? I love God. I think to myself, what does it mean to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength? and with all my mind. And I'd really like you to think about that after this sermon is over. I'd like to ask yourself, what does it mean for me to love God with all my heart and with all my soul? I, I have a hard time articulating it, uh, but I believe it's impossible because my heart is sick and desperately wicked and always find some way, like the lawyers and the politicians, to wiggle my way out from underneath some requirement that God makes of me. And I think yours does too. I think of what, what does it mean to love my wife with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind? And it would mean, you know, I, you could go on about this forever and I'm not going to do that. But it would certainly mean that I wouldn't make any motion or do anything or make any decision without putting her will and her desires maybe first. I wouldn't make a move without considering what she thought. And I think this is probably true for God. When we're getting up, when we're eating, when we're working, when we're driving to work, we don't make a move without considering God's will in our life. Thy will be done on earth that is, as it is in heaven. How is it accomplished in heaven? Everything God wills is accomplished in heaven according to his will. That's the way our lives are to be lived. This is an impossible standard. The Old Testament is an impossible standard. It gets even worse. Uh, let me skip back up to where I'm supposed to be here if I can. James, James clarifies it a little bit for us when you talk about how well I kept the law. You know, my Uncle Paul said uh, when I tried to share the gospel with him, or I shouldn't say that, when I shared the gospel with him, Uncle Paul said, you know, I've lived a good life. I don't need Jesus. You know, and, and, and the thing is, he didn't know what good was. He had no wisdom. He, he didn't understand what it requires to live a good life. There is none good, the Bible says. No, not one. 
James tells us, therefore, for him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is a sin. So if there's something you know God wants you to do and you don't do it, that's a sin. He also says, for whoever, whosoever shall keep the whole law, I bet that's a narrow number of people, for whosoever it is who shall keep the whole law, but yet offend or stumble, the word offend means to stumble, in one point, he's guilty of all. Well, that's rather harsh. It is rather harsh. But that's the way life is. In the New Testament, there are sins of omission, things I don't do, and sins of commission, things I do do. And the New Testament separates those kind of sins with two words. One word where you read sin, it means to miss the mark. It's like you fire an arrow at a target and you miss it. In this case, the arrow is your life and the target is God's will for your life. And you fire that arrow and it falls short. For all have sinned and come short. That's what the word means. All have sinned and come short. That's a sin of omission. You didn't make it. You weren't good enough. You didn't make the goal. God said go do this and you didn't quite get it all done. But there are also sins of commission, which is a trespass. He set a boundary around our lives. He said don't do this. And we do it anyway. We go beyond the boundaries that he set for us. So there's falling short and there's going too far. And in the New Testament, you read the word sin, that's falling short. And you read the word trespass, that's going too far. Now the lawyer understood this principle. That's why he does what he does here. And I never saw that till I read it through this time. The lawyer is doing a lawyer's trick in this thing. And if you're not careful, the devil's going to do the same trick in your heart. And you're going to think this is a parable and a story about loving your neighbor. But it's not. It's a diversion. There's a lot about neighbors, neighborly living in it. But that's not what the parable's about. It's not what the purpose of the parable is. It's a trick of the devil. The lawyer understands that one murder makes me a murderer. One theft makes me a thief. You can't go to the judge and say, but your honor, I've only killed one person. I mean, you can't convict me for life for one person. Come on, there's got to be there's got to be some slack in the law. Well, apparently there is now, but there didn't used to be any slack in the law. So one murder makes me a murderer and one thief makes me a thief and one sin makes me a sinner and it's an inescapable reality of the law. And this lawyer surely knows that he has failed many, many times in his supposed declaration of unending and undying love for God. He knows in his heart he's missed the mark terribly. So he attempts a distraction from the main point of this question, which he brought on himself. He understands that in his discussion with this carpenter, if he stays on the subject of the Shema, he's going to lose any argument he starts because he understands himself a sinner. He would be necessarily to expose himself to the many times that God was not first in his life. And you can look into Jesus' eyes and you know he knows every one of them. Can you imagine standing before Jesus Christ and attempting to justify yourself in front of the judge of all the earth who knows everything you've ever done? I've forgotten almost everything I've ever done. He'd have to remind me of them before I could confess them as a sin. All the times that this lawyer loved himself and not him, not God, all these times that he did his own will and not God's will, all these times that he failed to observe the commandments. Think about that. But it's true. Jesus said it right here. 
If you perfectly keep the Ten Commandments, you can walk into heaven on your own power and you'll be fine. It's just that no one's ever done that. It can't be done. Because the purpose of the law wasn't to justify you. It was to show us our sin. You want to find out where you failed, read the Ten Commandments. People say, well, you don't, you don't teach the Ten Commandments anymore. Oh yeah, they're still true. They're still valid and they still apply. It's just that in Christ, we rise up, we are lifted above the law. He fulfilled the law for us. So as a division, he asks, a diversion, I'm sorry, he asks this question. Luke tells us he was justifying himself. What a joke. He says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He picks up on one word in this response. It was probably a good move because the foolishness of attempting to justify myself before the one who knows everything about me is absolutely insane. His deepest and most shameful secrets are exposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing hidden that will not be revealed, the Bible tells us. I can just imagine a sad, sad smile creep across Jesus' face as this man says this. And Jesus starts this parable. Now this parable, in my opinion, was not given to teach us to be good neighbors. I think there's a whole different purpose in this parable. Because I think deep in this lawyer's heart, there's nothing he hates more than a Samaritan. So as you look at this parable, keep that in mind. This guy thinks he's better than every Jew that ever lived. He thinks he's a doctor of doctors, a Jew of Jews. That's what Paul used to say about himself. You know, he exceeded them all, Paul said. That's the arrogance of this fellow. And the hero in this story is going to be a much maligned Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down to Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. So this guy is laying in the road, bleeding, naked, robbed without a penny on him, half dead. Left in the road in that heat, he would die. So Jesus says, by chance, I, I love, I love Mr. Mr. says there's, Jews don't believe in chance. Calvinists don't believe in chance either. Uh, you know. By chance, there came down a certain priest. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, the absence of specific names in this New Testament story tells us this is a parable. It's not a story that really happened. Chance is not a Hebrew concept, and this lawyer knew that by chance. That's almost irony, see. The priest, whose main job it is to represent God to God's people and God's people to God, that's not my role, by the way, but the priest's role is that. They take your needs and cares and represent them to God, and they take God's needs and cares and represent them to you. That's an aspect of my role, but that's not the main purpose of my role. But his main job is to represent God, and he goes to the other side of the road and passes by, and the cynic says, why would he bother with this man? He's already been robbed. He's got nothing left to give. Jesus says, and likewise, a Levite. Now, 
there's the Levitical priesthood, but it only came through the family line of Aaron. Aaron, I'm sorry. So it's the Aaronic priesthood. This guy was a Levite, but he wasn't of the tribe of Aaron. He wasn't of the family lineage of Aaron. He's of the tribe of Levi, but not of the family lineage of Aaron. So he wasn't a priest, but he was a legal scholar whose entire role it was to fulfill all the minutiae of the law. He was a servant in the temple for his entire life. And all he did was follow all the tiny little details of the law that everybody in the temple would get it right. That was his job. All right. Likewise, the Levite, when he was in the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Now this poor man is beaten and broken, naked and without hope. It's a picture of our own lives. And, and you know, it, it, it tells a story on multiple levels here, so I hope you'll bear with me. I know I, I run the risk of confusing you in this. But this guy spent his life fulfilling all the details of the law and seeing a fellow Jew in desperate need, naked, broke, and dying, he crosses over the other side and goes by. And it tells us that there's no hope in the law and there's no mercy in the priesthood. The priest and the lawyer had nothing to offer. Jesus goes on with the story, but a certain Samaritan, almost a swear word in this man's culture, as he, I mean, they used the rate, they would, they would call Jesus a Samaritan, you know. And as he journeyed, he came by where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And when he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Now, I know I've been over this before, but the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split 800 years before Jesus' day. The northern kingdom fell into idolatry, and all the faithful Jews that, that resented idolatry, they fled to the south, and all the idolatrous Jews fled to the north. So it wasn't just one tribe or another. But the northern kingdom split, and eventually the Assyrians came in and, and, and captured the northern kingdoms and drug half of their population into other countries. And they would take populations of people from the other countries that they conquered, and they would bring them back in. So the Samaritans were forced to survive by working together, uh, getting along with, and eventually intermarrying with the Gentiles that the uh, Assyrian Empire brought in. Not true for the southern kingdom, which fell almost 100 years later. Uh, I think it was more like 80 years later, but then Babylon came in, and Babylon carried off thousands of uh, slaves from the southern kingdom, but they kept them separate in Babylon, in their own territory, and in the end of the 70-year uh, punishment, a, a large number well, I should say a small number of those that were captured chose to return. The vast majority of the southern kingdom that chose not to return assimilated into the Asian European theater, and their ancestors still live there today. You say, well, why are, why are there Jews in the Ukraine, and why are, why are there Jews in Russia? Well, it's because of this dispersion and their imprisonment in Babylon, and they chose not to return. They had good lives in Babylon. The empire was the most powerful empire in the world. Why would they return? It was only a handful, a remnant of faithful Jews that returned to Jerusalem after the diaspora. So there's no reason, with all this talk, there's no reason why these Jews who returned would think themselves better than anyone else. They fell into the same idolatry. They got the same carrying away. They got the same punishment as all the others. They just didn't intermarry with non-Jews. That was the only difference that they had there, but for the grace of God. They had no reason to feel that way, but they did. Both were conquered. Both fell into idolatry. 
Both were carried away. Those that did return, however, thought of themselves as pure Jews. You know. The Samaritans, they thought of as half-Jews, worse than a Gentile. So this hated Samaritan, rejected by true Israel, shows compassion. And on the next day, he takes the guy to a room, puts him in at an inn, takes care of him, feeds him, clothes him, binds up his wounds, takes care of the man. <laughs> this is not a lesson on neighborliness, but there's a message in this about how we're supposed to treat our enemies. There's a message in this about who is our neighbor. Not the purpose of the story, in my opinion, but it certainly is a message here what it means to love your neighbor. And he took out two pence, which I understand to be two days' wage, and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him. Whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. You couldn't ask for better treatment, could you? To this lawyer, this is the worst person Jesus could possibly pick to be the hero in this parable. Probably goes right to his own heart and his own hatred, not only of Samaritans, but of fellow Jews. If he's hoping to justify himself by diverting from Jesus, from his failure to love God, which I think the whole purpose of this uh, asking the question, who is my neighbor, was, a, was attempting to divert Jesus from honing in on the fact that this man didn't really love God. I think that's the reason he brought the question up. I think it was a typical lawyer trip. You know, and who is my neighbor? You know, Jesus is honing in on this guy's inability and unwillingness to love God as he should. And there's no way in the world he's going to get into heaven. And he goes, well, who is my neighbor? Picks up on one word and attempts to divert Jesus. So when Jesus creates this parable, imagine trying to trick God. When Jesus creates this parable in his mind, he hones in on the one thing that this guy hates the most, which is a Samaritan. If he's hoping to justify himself by diverting Jesus, he's missed up terribly. As my mother might say, he's jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. How in the world can we claim to love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and hate the things that God loves? You ever think about that? We can't. If we don't love the things God loves and hate the things God hates, then we don't love God. There's no way you can avoid that. And you know, if this guy was smart, and I think he was, he already knows he's lost the battle here. So Jesus turns to him and says, Which now of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, thinkest thou was the neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? And you know, it just, it must have killed this poor guy to have to admit it. He said, him that showed mercy on him. He couldn't even say this Samaritan. Him that showed mercy on him. And Jesus said unto him, go thou and do likewise. This Samaritan proved himself to be more of a neighbor to a Jew in need than a priest or a lawyer. And it showed him he didn't really love God. Go thou and do likewise. I don't think this parable is about being a good neighbor. But it does answer the question, who is my neighbor? All right, so you can't, you can't just dismiss it and say, well, this isn't about neighborliness. Well, it is, but that's not the point. The point is, do I really love God? And what does it mean 
What does it mean for me to really love? What would my look, life look like if I really love God? It's also not about salvation, but it speaks to the subject of salvation. All right. So I, you, you say they, they taught us never to try to make a parable walk on all fours. All fours. Don't try to make it say too much. And, and the main point of this thing is, do I really love God? And what will my life look like if I really love God? But it actually speaks to those other issues. It really does. It's not also not teaching salvation by works. You can't go out and bind up every broken person you find in the road and earn your way to salvation. It's not about that. But you also can't step over these people and ignore them because God wouldn't have you do that. I don't think it's about salvation, but it is a great picture. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but a Samaritan is a half-blood Jew that was hated by the general Jewish population. All right? Now, this may be blasphemy, so you might want to stay back a little bit. But Jesus is a half-blood Jew who was despised by the general population of Jews. He was God. You know, theologically, we say he's fully God and fully man. But his father was not a Jew. And they knew it. See? So you, you get this picture of this hated Samaritan as almost a Christ figure in this. And we could make an allegory out of this thing. And we could say this parable is about Jesus, the hated half-Jew, the Samaritan, as the unexpected hero who steps in and heals our hurts and provides for our needs when we're too sick, too almost dead, and too broke to even ask for help. It wouldn't be entirely wrong to say that about this parable because we were defeated by Satan, broken, stripped of all our righteousness, and had nothing we could offer God when our Samaritan Jesus came along and saved us. But that's not what this parable is about. Great allegory. It's not what it's about. This parable asks the question, what does it really mean to love God with all my heart? Once I'm told, and I don't know if this story is true, but I've heard it enough times, that Dwight L. Moody was once told as a young man that the world is yet to see a man that's wholly devoted to God. And Dwight L. Moody, as a young man, 18 years of age, set out to be that man. He said, I'm going to be that man that's wholly devoted to God. And his career stands in testimony, although I doubt if he succeeded 100%, his career certainly stands in testimony to the fact that he gave it a good go. One of the greatest evangelists that ever lived. This parable is about my sin and my selflessness, my selfishness, my self-will, and my need of a Savior. We cannot save ourselves because we cannot get out of our own way long enough to do anything close to loving God as we need to love God in order to be saved. We cannot even keep the first commandment. Skip the other nine. Can't even do the first. Instead of justifying himself, this lawyer should have repented. Like Job, he should have put his hand on his mouth. The only possible, the only plausible response to the Lord Jesus Christ by this lawyer should have been a confession that he's failed to love God properly his whole life. He should have said, not only do I not love God as I should, there's a lot of Jews I don't even like, Lord. And I don't know what I can do about that, Lord. I'm helpless and I'm hopeless. I am a sinner. That's the only response 
that would be proper coming from this attorney who knows the law so well, standing in front of the Holy Son of God and recognizing what a sinner he was. He should have fallen on his face and said, I'm a hopeless, despicable sinner. That's the only response to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So his question was, Master, what shall I do to him to inherit eternal life? And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. That's the answer to the Philippian lawyer, uh, Philippian jailer, I'm sorry. Jesus' answer is fairly simple. There's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. There's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. You've already missed that opportunity at the first sin. If you sin in one point, you're guilty of all. If you miss one mark, you're judged a sinner. We've missed that opportunity. Our only hope, your only hope, is in Jesus Christ, the God-slash-man, the God-man who came to save. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Paul said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, it's indeed my hope that this message rings clear to everyone within the sound of my voice. It's my hope, Father, that everyone understands that there is none good, no, not one, for we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. It is my deepest hope, Father, that everyone has come to a recognition of their own need of a Savior and are willing to call, are willing to cry out, are willing to say, Lord, please forgive me, for I am a sinner. I recognize my sin. I recognize my failure. I recognize, Lord, my hopelessness. I see myself in that road, naked, broken, and robbed of all my humanity. Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And please, allow Jesus Christ to come into my life and save me. And Father, I know by the power of Your Word and the promise of Your own Son, that if they'll call on His name, that they will be saved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.